Attention listeners, Astrology Hotline is at war. At war with unanswered astrology questions. We have the weapons, we have the training, but to achieve ultimate victory, we need your help. I want you to take out your phone, open up Apple Podcasts, subscribe to Astrology Hotline, crush all five stars, and rain down a righteous review of furious satisfaction. I want you to open up Spotify, subscribe to Astrology Hotline, and launch one high-speed thumb of flaming death at that five-star rating. And I want you to find the gnarliest, most insidious astrology question you can find. Email it to astrologyhotlinepod at gmail.com so we can slaughter it mercilessly on the show. Together, we can conquer astrology one question at a time. Welcome to the Astrology Hotline, where we answer your questions about your birth chart or about astrology in general. Today is Thursday, August 5th. My name is Tristan Paler, and hosting with me today is Kyle Pierce. Hello. Uh, We have a special episode for you today. Um, Our question comes from Porter, who wants to know what our thoughts are about the asteroids in astrology. And as it turns out, we have so many thoughts that we decided just to devote an entire episode to this particular question. Yeah, uh, before receiving this question, um, I had really been quite dismissive of the asteroids. Initially, you know, in my initial studies of astrology, I did like what a lot of people do is just I read, you know, ooh, that's descriptions of my, you know, my Juno sign or or this or that. And, you know, thought it was interesting. But then, you know, once I got into more traditional forms of astrology, uh, I really just kind of stopped paying attention to them altogether. But this question definitely prompted some research that uh, surprisingly changed my perspective on them. Had a... a Deep Impact, if you will. That's a that's a pun based on the movie Deep Impact, in which an uh, asteroid hits hits the I love Earth. It. But yeah, how about you, Tristan? What uh, was your experience with the asteroids before? Uh, the the Deep Impact reference <laughs> is not lost on me for what that's worth. Yeah, I I'm in a similar boat. Um, I was a little interested in them when I first got into astrology. And quickly, I don't know, I, I kind of thought they were noise. And um, then, you know, in the last year or so, I've been really uh, studying traditional astrology very deeply and, you know, really focusing on the seven visible planets. Um, and in a way, I'm, I am glad that that was my trajectory um, because it's sort of starting with the basics and starting with the planets that have been part of the tradition for thousands of years, um, I think has been helpful for me in terms of conceptualizing how the asteroids are useful and what they mean and, you know, what they add uh, potentially to the tradition. And yeah, I, I ended up, I wasn't expecting to uh, have my world (laughs) rocked by learning more about the asteroids, but here I am. Yeah. Uh, Samesies. 
Um, no, I think it, it ends up being really helpful. Uh, I'm glad to be learning uh, more about this, uh, the asteroids now. Just um, I feel like I'm able to really pull apart maybe what an asteroid like in my chart or someone else's chart might be doing um, a little more, you know, knowing how to uh, d- differentiate between, say, uh, Ceres and the moon, right? Um, but we'll we'll get into that as we we go along. Yeah, I feel like I should say, you know, as as a full disclaimer uh, for this episode, I am by no means an asteroid yes, expert. Yeah. I, you know, did a deep dive into researching them in the past week, um, and you know, as as many of us do, um, when we start researching things in astrology, we immediately reference them back to our own charts or the charts of our loved ones and people we know well. Um, so, you know, I'm not like, uh, there are astrologers who have studied the asteroids for decades and have experience looking at them in hundreds upon hundreds of client charts. Um, there are, you know, historians who know a ton about the mythology behind, um, you know, the, the names of the asteroids, like the figures they represent. Um, I am, I am neither of those people. Um, so I think, you know, a lot of what I have to say, is going to be grounded in my personal experience and, you know, the story of my sort of uh, introduction to the asteroids um, in the past week. Because I, you know, I can't really speak um, from a place of authority on anything other than my personal experience. I mean, ultimately, that that ends up being what sells most people on anything astrology related. You know, they see something in their own chart that really, really resonates. And that's true. You know. Holy cow! I'm, you know, I gotta know more about this, and uh, it's basically been the last week uh, of just really obsessively uh, <laughs> absorbing as much information as I can about about asteroids. Yeah, it's been intense. Yeah, and maybe you know, after we go over them a bit, talk about how you know we might individually use them in the future. I think they, you know, definitely deserve uh, recognition, and you know, they they do something. They they do stuff. Uh, I would say, but I would maybe treat them still differently than, you know, the traditional planets. That might be a good segue into just sort of talking broadly about what the asteroids are, you know, what differentiates them from the traditional planets and other bodies in the solar system. And I think you had a good sort of overview, Kyle, that you were describing to me. Yeah. Um, so to define asteroids, uh, Asteroids, from an astrological standpoint, include planetary bodies in the solar system, some of which can astronomically be categorized as asteroids, but also larger objects that at different times were categorized as planets, uh, minor planets, and planetoids. Usually when people refer to asteroids in astrology, they're referring to basically all the planetary bodies that are not one of the seven traditional planets, Sun, Moon, Mercury, Mars, Venus, Jupiter, Saturn, or one of the three outer planets, Uranus, Neptune, and Pluto. Objects like Chiron or Ceres or Vesta, Pallas, and Juno, for example. Um, Eris seems to also get kind of lumped in with the asteroids, but uh, it's technically, you know, kind of categorized as a minor planet similar to Pluto 
and kind of part of a group of trans-Neptunian minor planets. Because there's like a bunch of them that they're discovering all the time. Uh, you also get different categories among the asteroids in astrology, like Chiron, for example, is part of the family of planetary bodies called centaurs, comprising a group of asteroids and planetoids that inhabit the region of the solar system uh, beyond the orbit of Saturn. Is it between Saturn and Neptune? Am I, am I they, They're wild. I mean, the, they're very appropriately named and categorized. Um, the, uh, the astronomers who are working on these things were definitely thinking symbolically when they named them. Um, the centaurs are asteroids uh, that have unstable orbits um, that cross the orbits of one or more of the larger planets, uh, typically between Saturn and Pluto. Yeah. Okay. You really did uh, most of the research on, on the centaurs, so I'll defer to you on that. Um, I mean, Wikipedia was my friend on this <laughs> yeah, one. Wikipedia is everybody's <laughs> friend. Uh, <laughs> Donate to Wikipedia. Yeah, actually, good um, Mercury remediation, uh, by the way, for anybody interested, uh, donating to Wikipedia. Yeah. I, I, I do so regularly. The centaurs have characteristics of both asteroids and comets, mm. and the mythological centaurs are both horse and human. Mm. So. Interesting. There's uh yeah, there's a lot of symbolic resonance there. Yeah. And um there are it's estimated that there are between forty-four thousand and more than ten million centaurs in our solar system. <laughs> so there is a crowd, there is a rowdy crowd of uh celestial bodies hanging out around and past Saturn. Watch out. Yeah, I uh there's so much information floating around in my brain, but um, so, you know, if I say something inaccurate, uh, uh, begging of, of pardons, but the, uh, I remember reading something about there being, you know, what was it, and counting like over 100,000 uh, minor planets in the solar system or things that you could you could classify as minor planets. But, um, you know, the centaurs kind of represent one main body uh, or one main category of asteroids. And then there are those that inhabit the region of space between Mars and Jupiter, otherwise known as the asteroid belt. And these include asteroids like Ceres, Juno, Vesta, Pallas, Hygieia, just to name a few more prominent ones. But there are like thousands of these bodies and more are discovered, being discovered all the time. And the uh, just to give listeners an idea of sort of the time frame, um, the first few asteroids that were discovered uh, in the asteroid belt were discovered in the early 1800s. Ceres was the first. Uh, she was discovered in January of 1801. Um, and then the centaurs, you know, being farther away, uh, are a more recent discovery, I think. Uh, 1970s, right? Well, the, the very first one was discovered in 1920, mm. but the making, the, the Wikipedia article describes it as uh, they were not recognized as a distinct population until the discovery of Chiron in 1977. So I'm going to infer from that that that's about when the centaurs became sort of a collective uh, category of celestial objects. 
And then, you know, you have like the, the ones that get used a lot in astrology, um, were, I think discovered, um, from the 1970s on Chiron was in 77, then Pholus and Nessus were in the early nineties and Chericlo that, um, Chericlo is the wife of Chiron and, She's come up on my radar more and more in the last couple of years um, as a body that is used by astrologers, and she was discovered in 90, 1997. Yeah. So they're they're a little more recent. They're they've just come up on our radar, you know, in very recent history. Yeah, and that sounds like a good maybe segue into just talking a, a little bit about kind of the history of how asteroids kind of started getting um, incorporated into astrology. Yeah, that sounds great. Well, I know that Demetra George was not you know, necessarily the first to use asteroids uh, in astrology, but she is really credited, uh, I think, kind of primarily responsible for introducing and, and kind of popularizing uh, the use of asteroids in modern astrology. She began work on them in the late 1960s or 1970s, uh, eventually publishing a very popular book on them in the 1980s called Asteroid Goddesses. And her interpretation of the asteroids uh, emphasized the the mythology of the goddesses after which they were named and presented them as representing a sort of counterbalance to the predominance of patriarchal archetypes in traditional astrology. As their discovery really seemed to coincide with uh, kind of increasing awareness and prominence of women and women's issues in public life and society. And one thing I find very interesting about Demetra George's chart is uh, she's a Leo rising, and she is Venus in Virgo ruling her 10th house. You think that Virgo uh, often has to do with kind of focusing on smaller things like, you know, asteroids as compared to planets, and uh, Venus being, you know, very inclusive, sort of harmonizing planet um, and the fact that, you know, her career, uh, kind of claim to fame is really, um, finding a place, even advocating for incorporating these otherwise minor bodies. And actually, you know, initially she was met with like a lot of, um, you know, a lot of mainstream astrologers in the seventies just kind of scoffed at her like, oh, we don't need this, these, uh, these, you know, little floating balls of, of ice and rock, you know, gunking up our our perfect astrology. They refer to them as like gravel or something like that. She does. Yeah. Uh, well, yeah. She's a gravel floating balls of gravel. Yeah. She's a guest on an episode of the astrology podcast and she talks about the asteroids and like her, um, how she became interested in it and, and the reception she received from the astrology community um, and I, I couldn't help smiling when I was listening to her talk about it. Cause you know, she was kind of talking about, um, having to work from a grassroots level because mm-hmm. the people who, you know, had the positions of authority in the astrology world were not interested in hearing about the asteroids and were very dismissive of them. Um, but you know, people that she was doing client work with, were actually really interested in them mm-hmm. um, and really resonating with their stories. I think in part because, um, you know, there there aren't a lot of goddesses among the planets that astrologers were using at the time. Um, 
So sort of popularizing them from that grassroots place. And I, I kind of like that, you know, as someone who's, oh, yeah. who's got a little bit of an anti-establishment streak. <laughs> yeah. And I think that's a good, um, you know, for anybody out there that has, you know, maybe a planet that traditionally called, you know, in its fall or in its detriment, you know, ruling an important house. Uh, it's a lot of ways that that can work out um, very, you know, favorably. I mean, she's one of the, the big, probably one of the best known uh, astrologers in, in the astrology community. Definitely is going to have a legacy that is going to gonna endure, I would assume. Yeah, definitely. I, this this is now a pro Venus and Virgo podcast. Yeah, I like Venus and Virgo. I do love the planets and fall or detriment in the tenth house or in the first house, and being you know kind of movers and shakers who force the establishment to kind of change or criticize the establishment or just like yeah, and even like from a Venusian level, it's not like she was criticizing the establishment necessarily. Um, but just like her work actually relating to people did end up shaking up the establishment and kind of forcing them to wake up and and reassess their position on things. Like, oh yeah, this is what people want to hear now. And this is what they want to see at their, this is what they're asking about in their charts. We better, uh, read Demetra's book and, and learn about this. And that's like, I mean, this is something, you know, now that I'm walking down the path of being a professional astrologer, there's often a difference between what, um, you know, professional astrologers in the astrology community are really focused on and what clients who are seeking readings from professional astrologers are focused on. And the asteroids are really popular among people who are consumers Mm -hmm. of astrology readings. And I think, you know, it's important to take that seriously. Like there's a reason that people want to see certain things. There's a resonance there. And I don't think that we should ignore um, what resonates with people kind of defeats the whole purpose of doing astrology. I absolutely agree. On that note, I think it is important to still sort of distinguish um, what role it is that asteroids play. And what is it that differentiates them from the planets? I don't know if you have some thoughts on that. Yeah. Well, um, this is related. I do want to talk just a little bit uh, about the concept of of daimon. So Demetra framed the asteroids within the ancient Greek cosmology that astrology is based on as daimon. And daimon has a meaning akin to spirit in English, but was also used uh, to kind of refer to the gods, but rather than maybe the personhood or personality of a given god, uh, which might be called theos, uh, daimon was often used to describe the action or activity of the gods. And you can kind of get a sense of this when you look at significations of the houses, of the 12 houses, uh, with the bottom hemisphere. Um, you know, you get the house of good fortune, you get the house of bad fortune. And the bottom hemisphere houses are uh, more embodied. They deal with the topics that are more embodied, having to do with physical, uh, more tangible experiences in general. Um, with the upper hemisphere, you know, houses 
8 through 12, dealing more with kind of activity, more abstract, conceptual houses. You know, the house of good spirit, the house of, of bad spirit. Um, and then Daimon would also describe sort of semi-divine beings that would act uh, sort of go-betweens between the gods and sort of plane of human experience. Um, I like to think of them as sort of uh, like lieutenants, you know, like the, the planets, uh, the planetary gods give the orders and, you know, they might give like a general decree, but it's kind of up to the lieutenants to decide on how it's carried out. And I think you can really see that play out for people in, in charts when you're kind of looking at their their asteroid placements. Yeah, I think, I think, um, as I, you know, my, my beginner crash course on the asteroids this past week has been reading, uh, asteroid goddesses by Demetra George. And she talks about, um, like a planetary matrix at points in the book where, you know, like Mm. the moon sort of acts as a, as a matrix or like an umbrella, um, concept. And then an asteroid, like series exists under that umbrella as sort of a more specific uh, expression of the lunar archetype. Yeah, definitely. That That's a very concise and succinct way of, <laughs> of putting what I was trying to say. <laughs> Thank you for that. Um, You're welcome. Yeah, which I think is, it's useful because, you know, one of the, once you start adding objects into astrology you potentially run into redundancy um which you know is something Mm -hmm. like i've one of the reasons i've been really kind of focusing on learning astrology and practicing astrology with just the seven traditional planets is that you know the meaning that's given to the outer planets um a lot of those significations were significations that already belonged in the tradition to the seven traditional planets like Pluto mm-hmm. takes a lot of its significations from Mars, for example. Um, so it, when you know you're dealing with just like a large number of bodies, there is that question of you know what do they stand for that isn't um, just repeating something that's already part of the tradition or already covered by the seven traditional yeah. planets. But I think there is a way in which the asteroids are like more specific manifestations of those broader archetypes and. Um, you know, they, they stand for, uh, specific stories. Um, you know, like Cirrus has a very clear narrative, um, that the moon doesn't necessarily have because the moon is such a broad archetype, but then you look at the story of, um, Demeter, who's, um, the Greek equivalent of Ceres and where, you know, the asteroid gets a lot of, its meaning from and that's like a very specific story and role that's sort of like in the lunar sphere um but you can like identify that narrative a little more exactly in a chart when you look at that asteroid hopefully i'm making sense no absolutely um yeah i think that was really one of the things that confused me about the asteroids uh kind of looking at them early on is like oh well juno it's the you know, was the goddess of, of marriage, right? Well, isn't that Venus? You know, what is that? What makes that different from Venus? Um, and I think what has 
maybe help uh, me understand what, what they're doing is is like you said they're they're um it's like extensions of or, or more specific permutations of of that theme you know I don't think that uh, Juno is like stealing significations from Venus you'd say that uh, you know Juno is like another place to look for themes around marriage but it also has you know more very specific um themes around not just marriage but um it's like a specific experience of marriage and a specific experience yeah. of relationship you know there's a certain or partnership yeah yeah that have you know that are primarily primarily derived from the the archetype the the goddess in question the mythology around it which is another maybe important distinguish distinguishing point about the asteroids is that the traditional planets uh, while a lot of the significations um, line up with uh, mythology of the god that it was named after um, we don't really rely as much on on mythology to kind of pull the significations for for the traditional planets um, they're much broader archetypes and I'm just thinking you know the the planets play these really sort of clear roles where, you know, like Saturn and Mars negate things, Jupiter and Venus affirm things. And um, regardless of their mythology, you know, they play a certain, they have to do a certain job within the system. And, you know, the asteroids are not sort of tasked with the responsibilities that the traditional planets mm -hmm. are. Um, they just kind of stand alone as stories. And, you know, yeah. I think like when you're looking at the traditional planets in a chart, you know, you're sort of looking at like, um, say, a planet is ruling a certain house. Um, and that says something about how the topics of that house might go in somebody's life. And a planet like Jupiter or Saturn having an influence on that planet is going to really significantly change how that planet um, like does its job. Like say, you know, a planet rules your seventh house, it's in charge of your relationships and it's being opposed by Saturn. So it has to kind of work against mm -hmm. that energy in order to give you relationships. Um, yeah. Whereas the asteroids, you know, when you're working with them, it's more about telling the story. Like this is the story of Ceres. Um, does that story resonate with your own life story in a meaningful way? Yeah. Yeah, I, I would say, um, especially given that, you know, at least as far as I can tell and the way that the asteroids are used, you know, they, they don't rule houses like the planets do. So they're not creating scenes as much. They're not um, uh, defining, you know, the environment uh, setting the stage, but they're they're kind of like actors in a sense, operating within uh, within a paradigm, you know. Yeah, yeah, they don't have that that responsibility, you know. They're kind of like they're they're not in charge of anything. Um, yeah, but they're just like involved. Mm -hmm. Yeah, but I mean, they also in some ways they show up almost more visibly. Um, in a sense, because they, they, you know, if you have, uh, say, Saturn in your 10th house um, in a night chart, you know, you might have uh, 
you, know, you may you may meet a lot of obstacles or uh, run into really strict authority figures in you know your your work in public career life, right? But you know if Saturn is conjunct, say really any one of these asteroids, you know they might it might take on uh, you might run into a lot of like powerful female figures, you know, or um, you know Saturn might be delivering its significations sort of through the themes of that asteroid. That makes sense. I actually really like that. Yeah, I think that totally makes sense. Um, where you know the the Saturn that you meet in your tenth house is um, a slightly different face of Saturn. If there's an asteroid right there, where you know Saturn sort of broadly represents maybe authority figures, and if uh, Saturn is conjunct an asteroid like say Pallas, who you know is a warrior goddess, those authority figures might. Um, be, you know, strategists or powerful women or whatever the case may be. They're still going to be Saturnian, but it's Saturn mm. expressing itself through um, a more specific archetype. Yeah. And, you know, at least as far as I can tell at this point, you know, further research may reveal uh, a different story, but I, I don't know if like Ceres can like bonify a planet or or maltreat a planet, you know? I don't, I don't know if you can really strictly call any of them benefics or malefics or, or anything like that. I don't know if they have those kinds of powers, at least as far as I can tell. Should we maybe uh, introduce, you know, listeners to um, the goddesses and the centaurs, at least, you know, the ones that get used most often? So, you know, we've been talking a little bit about them. Might be good to give them a formal introduction. Yeah, absolutely. Um, for most of my research purposes, just because there are thousands of asteroids, I uh, focus a lot of my research on the big four, Dimitri would call the big four. Uh, and that would be Ceres, uh, Pallas, Pallas Athena, uh, Vesta, and Juno. Wait, should I, should I also maybe introduce the centaurs just briefly? Yeah. Uh, we're going to... We've focused our research on the four goddess asteroids, um, but I do want to mention some of the centaurs just briefly, just to give you because they they are uh, used with some frequency. Chiron, in particular, mm-hmm. um, Chiron is automatically placed in a chart if you cast a chart on astro.com. Um, so most people who get into astrology are familiar with Chiron. So he probably doesn't need much of an introduction, but um, he is the wounded healer archetype. Um, I won't give you know a whole overview of his mythology, but uh, you know he's he's unusual among the centaurs in that the centaurs in Greek mythology are generally a very rowdy bunch of creatures. They're sort of feral and um, they don't really care about, you know, morals or the laws of society. Um, They sort of represent the wilderness and Chiron is actually, he has some divine parentage and he's, he's not just sort of animalistic like the other centaurs. He's actually like a teacher and a healer. Um, So he has kind of a significant position among the centaurs. Um, And then another sort of similar centaur is Pholus, um, who does come up uh, in discussions of centaurs in astrology sometimes. Um, Pholus was also considered to be a little bit more uh, civilized than the other centaurs, but he was not immortal. 
Mm. Um, and then Cheriklo uh, was the wife of Chiron. Um, in some accounts in Greek mythology, she is the daughter of Apollo. Unfortunately, I couldn't really find much about her that wasn't explicitly about her connections to men, basically. All of the information I could find on Cheriklo was about how she was related to men. You know, she's the wife of Chiron. She's the nurse of a number of Greek heroes. Um, Weird. Including Achilles. And... <laughs> And uh, her name, the one thing I could find out about her that didn't have to do with her relationships with men was the meaning of her name, um, which is Graceful Spinner. Graceful Spinner. And then we have a lot of centaurs that are not such nice people. Uh, Chiron, Pholus, and Cheriklo are, you know, generally nice people. Then there's Nessus, who tried to have his way with the wife of Heracles, and Heracles killed him. And then his own, the poisoned blood of Nessus eventually killed Heracles. So not a very pleasant story. And Ixion is another centaur um, that sometimes shows up in astrology. Who, well, he's, I don't know that he's strictly a centaur, mythologically speaking. Astronomically speaking, that's the category he's in. Mythologically speaking, he's actually the ancestor of all the centaurs and how he ended up as the ancestor to all the centaurs is also not a very nice story. So just, he's not a nice guy. It's a lot of very not nice stories <laughs> in Greek mythology. They're, yeah. Yeah. They're, <laughs> they're not very pleasant. Um, Ixion's story is not very pleasant. So, you know, if you look that up, content warning for that one, there's a lot of bloodshed and just generally immoral behavior going on. Yeah. I find uh, just on that note <laughs> is that, it's almost kind of nice is that there is usually like a family friend friendly, more family friendly version of a Greek story. And then there's like the really awful dark version that, you know, maybe depending on your tastes, you, you can uh, sort of choose your your own adventure on that to some degree. Definitely. So then I guess, you know, that brings us to the goddesses who we really want to dive into. Yeah. All right. We're we're starting with series, right? Yes, Sirius was the first uh, first asteroid discovered, and actually when it was discovered in 1801 by Giuseppe Piazzi, forgive me if I'm not pronouncing that correctly, Giuseppe, it was considered a planet. They classified it as a planet until about 1850, 1850s or so, when it was classified as an asteroid. And then I believe in 2006 the same time that Pluto was being demoted to <clears throat> a minor planet, Ceres got promoted to, to a minor planet. Um, Ceres is what is called a proto-planet. It's basically a, I think it was like a planetary sort of Lego block uh, that you know never really got quite incorporated into uh, a Lego set. Ceres is the only minor planet in the inner solar system that's uh, you know within the orbit of the asteroid belt. It's the largest object in the asteroid belt, makes up about 25% of its mass. Its orbit is uh, 1,682 Earth days, or about 4.6 Earth years. Uh, NASA actually considers Ceres one of the solar system's primary candidates for the existence of potential life due to the abundance of water. In fact, uh, they estimate that about 50% of the mass of Ceres 
could be water. That is very fitting. Yeah, as that's why I want to get all this uh, science uh, business um, <laughs> established because it really does actually. Uh, same with a lot of the other um, asteroids, is that some of their astronomy and kind of physical characteristics really show up in the mythology and um, kind of how they they seem to to play out in charts. But also one of the you know physical physical qualities of Ceres, or perhaps the astronomical qualities of Ceres, is that under very rare conditions, uh, when Ceres is at peak magnitude, if the sky on Earth happens to be dark enough, uh, it is possible to see Ceres with the naked eye if you have just perfect 20-20 vision. But you can generally see Ceres uh, with uh, just simple binoculars. Um, and I think that's true for, I'm not sure about Juno, but... Um, it's definitely true for Vesta because Vesta's very reflective. Vesta's the brightest. Yeah. And I think that that visibility is something in, in my mind that maybe upgrades them, uh, maybe holds them, gives them a little more significance than some of the other asteroids, or at least, you know, with my uh, sort of cynical bent, uh, I'm like, oh, well, maybe I'll take you seriously because, you know, I could see you or something. <laughs> I don't know. Yeah, what is what is biggest and most obvious and you know, what do we give the most attention to? And I think I mean this is not strictly related to uh series, but um one thing that does really distinguish the asteroids from the seven traditional planets is visibility and just the amount of time we've been observing them. And I think there's something symbolic there too like there's uh you know by the time we started discovering these asteroids it's because technology had advanced enough to enable us to discover you know everything else going on in our uh solar neighborhood you know astrologers in uh ancient greece or in medieval europe or you know wherever people were doing astrology um they didn't have access to a computer mm -hmm. that would just like plug in where, you know, all of the, the dwarf planets and asteroids were um, in a given chart. You know, they were calculating all this stuff by hand based on what they could actually like observe. So this is kind of a new era for astrology in a way that, you know, the asteroids maybe symbolizes, you know, we, uh, what we can see that whole um, issue of visibility um, what is visible to us has expanded significantly. Yeah, yeah. But what do you think? Should I go over the mythology first, or go over significations first? Let's let's dive into the mythology of Ceres. Okay. So, just to give a, a brief overview of the mythology of Ceres. Um, she was the goddess of fertility and agriculture, seen as the patron of farmers and common folk. Uh, somewhat unique among the Pantheon for being just really actively involved in human affairs, as opposed to most of the gods who would kind of pick pet humans to take interest in or, you know, humans they wanted to have sex with or kind of intervene when it served their agenda, um, maybe when they wanted to prove something to another god or, or whatever. There's a lot of games, you know, the gods like to play, but Ceres is kind of the one that just did what um, 
her job was just to sort of, um, she was really in charge of agriculture uh, at its essence. But in the Greek and Roman era, people tended to worship the god that was most associated with their social status and their profession. So Sirius may have been perhaps the most widely worshipped because she was the goddess of the common farmer, the plebeians, right? You also get the word cereal from Sirius, some from Ceres. Uh, Ceres was the mother of Persephone, maybe most notably uh, in her story, uh, who was kidnapped by Pluto. And there's kind of an in- interesting uh, astronomical relationship with Jupiter that, that sort of coincides because Pluto was sort of given the okay from Jupiter to kidnap uh, Ceres, his sister's daughter, uh, to take as a wife. And astronomically, scientists believe Jupiter's gravitational dominance of that region had something to do with why Ceres never formed into a planet. So in the story, Persephone, uh, Ceres goes looking for Persephone. Now, is it Ceres? Uh, she, go, she goes looking for Persephone, right? Does she go down into the underworld or... How does that uh that com- that that take place? Uh series I don't believe goes down into the underworld. Um she when she finds out what happened, she essentially goes on strike. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's and right. And mm-hmm. nothing on earth will grow. Um yeah. because Ceres is the grain goddess and um you know the goddess of nurturing and agriculture and food when she's grieving for her abducted daughter nothing on earth will grow and everyone is hungry yeah basically just becomes Um, winter right yeah yeah exactly yeah and so kind of to appease series because you know an otherwise she's an otherwise like benevolent god but you know if you take your daughter away uh she'll she'll mess you up right so the gods orchestrated a deal with pluto you know like hey pluto you need to give her Persephone back. But uh, Pluto, was it that he fed or that he gave, he tricked uh, Persephone into eating? Um, it was a pomegranate. Eating a pomegranate, that's right, uh, in the underworld. And the rule was that if you ate something in Hades, then you couldn't leave. But they, you know, were sort of, kind of got to work around. Basically, you get a uh, sort of a split custody agreement between series in Pluto, uh, in which Persephone spends, I don't think it was 50-50. I think it was, uh, I think it, I think it is. I think it's half the year, half the year, like half the year Persephone is in the underworld and half the year Persephone is in the world of mortals. And I guess maybe not the world of mortals. Persephone is not in the underworld and can be with her mother series. And that series is happy and things grow on earth during the half of the year. Which is sort of a mythological. It's like the origin um, of the story seasons. of the seasons. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. There's this year where we can't grow anything and everything is cold because the goddess of agriculture is grieving um, because she wants to be with her daughter. Yeah. So, that kind of being the broad mythology, you can see where a, a lot of the significations of series come from. So, you know, significations for series. Uh, Involve motherhood, nurturing. They called Ceres the Great Mother. She's referred to often as the Great Mother, um, mother of the people. So you get themes of not just motherhood, but also 
not just motherhood and the sort of traditionally mothering component of parenthood, but kind of playing the mother role to larger groups. Um, and series is often associated with sort of creating or seeking out more inclusive, supportive communities. But you do get sort of darker themes with series uh, to do with kind of attachment, I mean, both positive and negative themes uh, around attachment styles and uh, also grief and loss of children, but sort of the natural grief that I think all parents go through, speaking as a parent, um, of just watching your, your children grow up and you know, your role as their parent diminishes over time and having to sort of let them go and be their own people. Hopefully not marry you know, the god of the underworld, but that, that seems to be a general theme that comes up. Uh, is that something you have found with series as well? I mean, I'm I'm not uh, I'm not a parent, and I'm really glad you brought that up and that you have this perspective, because um, you know that's not it's not part of my personal experience, um, but that does make a lot of sense to me. You know, there's at some stage a child is probably going to move out and they're going to develop independence, and um, how as a parent you handle that, I think, is a topic that is relevant to series. Well, it was a lot of the thinking around series for me over the past week or so. It's been around, you know, like not everybody's a parent. Um, you know, how can those themes play out or maybe show up for people in a much broader mm -hmm. context? And I mean, you think about, you know, with that consciousness uh, in mind of a parent and their child, you know, you know that they're eventually going to grow up and leave you uh, and all that. Um, so you want to pre prepare them for the outside world. You want to nurture them and, you know, make them their own solid people. Um, and I find it interesting that Ceres is the daughter of Saturn. So you get, uh, is it Saturn and Opus? Opus? It's like some ancient god about, uh, related to some ancient earth god. I, I don't know. I'm, I'm not as uh, well-versed in the entire pantheon as I think you are, Tristan, but... If you know anything about that, yeah, I'm not. I'm not sure who exactly you're referring to. Ops. Yeah, yeah not, it's I'm like O P P S. Yeah, Ops. Yeah, I, I'm not. Doesn't matter. It's just the mother, right? That is. <laughs> um, I mean, that's that tells you something right there, right? Like how often we either haven't heard of the mother of a deity, um, mm -hmm. or you know, what we do know of female deities, like, you know, when I was talking about Chericlo, it's like the information I could find was just, she's defined by how she relates to men. Yeah. You know, there's no sort of like heroic story I could find about Chericlo. Um, so I think that does tell you something. Makes me think of that, uh, what's that poem, like Children of Saturn or the whole idea of Children of Saturn. Like there is some uh, a woe and challenge built in uh, to series story. Mm -hmm. I don't know. There's a very Saturnian consciousness sort of involved in series that, you know. Yeah. Yeah, there's the sort of inevitable end to a certain phase or cycle. Yeah, the theme of cycles of time and within any cycle, there is a period of decline. Um, and I mean, even the, the symbols for Saturn, I mean, all of 
all of the asteroid goddesses we're discussing are connected to Saturn in some way. Um, Ceres and Pallas is the only one who isn't a child of Saturn of the four. Pallas is a child of, of Jupiter, of, of Zeus. Um, but all of the other three are actually children of Saturn and siblings of Zeus or Jupiter. Yeah. Um, but Ceres is the one who actually has a glyph that looks very much like Saturn's glyph. Um, yeah. The glyph the that's used for, like the... yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah. The glyph that's used for Saturn in astrology looks like a sickle and the glyph for Ceres is like almost the same glyph, but just flipped so that the sickle, the blade of the sickle is facing up instead of down. Yeah. And so, I mean, I think that is, that's a good, like, sort of hint at the way the other asteroids work is that, you know, kind of on its face, it sounds like, oh, sounds a lot like the moon. Typically, the moon is where you look for topics and themes related to parenting, how, you know, one is nurtured, even uh, one of the big significations of serious food. I do find that uh, the condition of the moon in a chart often does say a lot about food, but you can also see, you know, themes of Saturn involved in Ceres and, you know, even other archetypes perhaps. And that is the thing too, when you really like dig into astrology is you see the overlap in kind of all of them, that there is overlap, that the way that the planets all work together, uh, create these sort of overlapping themes or themes that connect to each other. You know, like the moon mm -hmm. and Saturn, Cancer uh, opposes Capricorn. So there's kind of an inherent inbuilt relationship between the moon and Saturn that, um, you know, we don't always like to see the moon with Saturn, but the, the you know, death and rebirth, the, the end of life, the beginning of life, uh, you know, the shifting of seasons. But Ceres kind of um, holds that archetype or holds a, a representation of that or synthesis, if you will. And I think something that I am increasingly recognizing in my own study and practice of astrology is that there's a ton of overlap even between the seven traditional planets. Um, and they don't fit as neatly into boxes as we would like them to. What sort of gives them clear roles in traditional astrology is that they're given responsibilities um, and what you're responsible for isn't necessarily an indication of your total character. Um, so like Mercury and Jupiter are sort of opposite archetypes, just as an example, but there's also a lot of overlap between those archetypes. Um, but what it comes down to is not sort of like who they are as people or who they are as characters, um, but what job they're sort of given to do within the scheme mm -hmm. sets them in that polarity. But if, you know, you were taking them just as characters in a drama, um, there is actually a ton of overlap between all of these figures. And so it makes sense that the asteroids are inevitably going to overlap quite a bit in terms of their symbolism with the planets. Yeah. I mean, that's how and that's you know, okay. it shows up in people's lives too, you know. Yep. Uh, there's no pure Saturns out there. There's no pure uh, Venuses out there like they're... They're all uh, interacting. You know, people aren't archetypes. Yeah. Yeah. And I think even even the planets themselves, you know, like Saturn was sitting here with us, you know, he might just want to have a good time. Like maybe he wouldn't feel like being all 
uh, serious and slow. Maybe he'd feel like, I don't know, going out and playing bumper cars or something, but he has mm-hmm. a job. And when yeah. he's doing his job, he's not doing bumper cars, you know? Yeah. Well, that's uh, and one of the other kind of significations of series is um, <clears throat> the sort of duty behind uh, taking care of of not just a child, but uh, a community or, you know, your friends or, you know, what other uh, maybe area of life series might be, be pointing to. It's making me think too, um, as you were mentioning, you know, the the symbolism of series as parent and her connection to experiences of parenthood. But, you know, as you were learning about series, you were thinking about the fact that not everybody is a parent, but everybody is a child. Everybody has mm-hmm. an experience of caregiving um, when they are children. And I think that experience might also be relevant um, to the placement of series in your chart. I think in in Demetra's book, she talks a lot about the connection between food and parenting and like your parents, how your parents, um, you know, some of us have experiences where um, parents sort of use food or deny food as sort of reward or punishment, or, you know, we learn certain things like, um, you're only going to get dessert if you finish your whole meal. Um, and we sort of learn from our parents to ignore what our bodies are telling us in favor of social norms around food. So that, I mean, that's also a lunar signification, like food and caregiving for sure. But it's interesting, like how series kind of highlights that specific dynamic of how food overlaps um, with parenting and how our experience of being fed and our parents' attitude around food affects not only how we eat as adults, but a lot of other things about our behavior potentially or how we feel about the world or about ourselves. Yeah, that's what you'll, I ran into a lot as a lot of um, astrologers talking about uh, eating disorders, you know, with kind of corresponding with a certain series placements. But I just think, of, I'm, it's making me think about the, you know, in modern society, we kind of have the luxury of not having to be overly concerned with food. Um, it's sort of, you know, that hierarchy of needs, uh, a layer of the hierarchy of needs is, is just sort of taken for granted. You know, we sort of have it um, under control. But there's so much symbolically throughout history, even today, that goes with food. You know, having uh, if you're going out on a date, you know, you often go out to dinner. Um, business meetings are often dinner meetings. You know, if somebody's visiting your house. It's, there's sort of an implicit expectation to provide them with food. Maybe not as, as much nowadays, but uh, traditionally, um, there's I mean a lot of uh, there's a lot around that. But I, I don't find my my go to is not to look for food specifically uh, when I look at series. But you know, a funny example I actually do have of a series placement that uh, maybe relates to an episode uh, I did on my other podcast, uh, Killer Cosmos, is that. Uh, may not belong on this podcast, but it's, you know, John Wayne Gacy was known for, uh, he, he murdered a lot of, of young men. Um, a lot of parents lost children to John Wayne Gacy. Um, he also, when he was in prison the first time, uh, he was in prison for a brief stint, 
before his kind of infamous murder spree, and he discovered a talent as a chef. Uh, he was like the prison's cook, and everybody was like, oh my God, you're amazing, Gacy. And that was actually what he did for a living uh, for a while after, uh, after getting out of prison. And he has series conjunct uh, Mercury in Pisces, like exactly conjunct Mercury in Pisces, uh, which, you know, if you listen to that episode, you can get uh, more um, comprehensive analysis of what's going on with Mercury. Um, but, you know, you get both the food element of series with his placement, but also the, uh, unfortunately, the, the kidnapping of, of children. Which, you know, don't freak out about your, your series placement, people. <laughs> I wouldn't start yeah, jumping to conclusions about that. <laughs> yeah, I mean, that's that's the trouble, right? Is often the most uh, extreme examples serve as the clearest illustrations. But for the average person, that's not how series is going to look. Yeah. To, to offer a, a somewhat lighter example <laughs> of series in a natal chart, my dog has series <laughs> conjunct his moon, also in Pisces. Um, and I remember, uh, my partner and I learning about the different that, you know, the whole theory of love languages. And we decided just for fun, uh, to do, there's a website where you can like do a test to figure out what is your love language. And we were like, let's do one for Kitsu. Kitsu is the dog. Mm -hmm. Um, and so we did the love language test as if we were Kitsu responding to the questions and discover that his love language is definitely receiving gifts. But of course, if you're a dog, all of your gifts are food. And we know like, you chew know, toys. animals, animals love us because we feed them. Um, yeah, I guess chew toys would be one, but he's really about the food. And, you know, it's not it's not unusual for animals to be all about food, but he is one of those dogs that's particularly food motivated. Like, yeah. if if he thinks there's even a slight chance that there might be food. He does not want you to touch him. He does not want you to talk mm -hmm. to him. He's like, show me the money. Mm -hmm. Like, I know there's peanut butter somewhere. Give me the peanut butter. Don't talk to me until it's in front of me. <laughs> yeah. So it's very, and it's interesting actually, because I had to, um, sometimes there are funny ways that we project onto our pets. Um, and there have been times where I've been like, you don't really love me. You're just using me for food. Mm -hmm. um, you know, because the way I experience love and nurturing is more through um, touch or being spoken to. Um, and the way he experiences nurturing is through being fed, which is not as big of a thing for me. So I had to kind of, you know, take a step back and realize like his way of receiving love is through his stomach and that's a totally valid way of feeling like loved and appreciated and safe and nurtured. And it's different from how I experience love and feeling safe and nurtured, but that, you know, doesn't make his way any less valid or important. Doesn't mean he's just using me for food. It's like, there's a connection like with series conjunct the moon and the moon being about how we feel safe. Um, I think it's not just about him you know, needing uh, his appetite to be satisfied. It's that if people are feeding him, he knows that he's safe. He knows that we love him. It's an assurance that we love him. It's not just like a hedonistic thing. I think it's a very, a very lunar drive in his case. Yeah. 
Well, then it's, it's like a baby, right? It's funny because mm. it's funny you even said the just a bit about like, would you even love me if if I wasn't giving you food right now? You know, I remember having <laughs> that sort of thought uh, from time to time, uh, more jokingly or ironically, <laughs> with the you know my son when he was a baby. Um, that so much of the bonding, really, though, that that goes on between you and a baby is is the the feeding process you know so my happiest memories are mm-hmm. uh you know waking up in the middle of the night um to feed my son you know and sitting in a rocking chair and uh those are like the moments that i uh when i just when i think about them i feel so much more connected to him um something i have to do sometimes when uh you know, when you inevitably lose that connection uh, from time to time, you know, uh, which is just uh, inevitable as a parent. Man, there's like a a broader sense too in which, you know, it's easy to feel like we live in an impersonal universe that does not care about us. I mean, it may very well be objectively true, um, but when we are being fed and nourished by the world, it makes us feel like we live in a universe that actually cares about us. So in that broader sense, like Ceres as, you know, the goddess of um, agriculture and the food that we get from the earth, there's a sense where, you know, when the earth is providing food for us, we feel like the world is safe. We feel like the world cares about us. So thank you to Kitsu for teaching (laughs) that lesson. Because I think, and maybe maybe it's part of what you were saying earlier too, that you know, both of us living in in North America, when you know, being privileged in the ways that we are privileged, food is something we can easily take for granted. Um, and so I don't make the con- I make the connection more between food and money than I do between food and love. And so that was like, you know, when I saw myself reacting to my sweet innocent dog being like, "Do you really love me?" I had to be like, okay, come on. <laughs> like he doesn't have any concept of of money or like material things. This is very much connected to to love and bonding for him. Um, and maybe there's a bit of a disconnect between food and bonding for me because, you know, I for one take it for granted and for another associate it with just like it's another bill I have yeah. to pay. Yeah, I almost find uh, uh, ironically that like, food for me is ends up being something that I end up being really cheap on <laughs> sometimes <laughs> not all the time but that I oh, yeah. uh, you know I can be a little frivolous uh, with my spending in other ways so maybe food is not the first place I look to feel uh, nourished um, which maybe you know resonates a little bit with uh, my personal placement with with series the uh, one that uh, Tristan and I actually happen to share is a series in Pisces, um, actually pretty close uh, to the midheaven. And uh, when I think about that, I you know think about like what makes me feel nourished or or, or something. What uh, it's like, what do I feed off of? In a sense, like it's like I I um, like meaning. You know, when things uh, when something gives, when I can find meaning in something or find. Um, when you overuse the word spiritual, it's like it's almost like the Pisces go-to word. But um, I find something that 
and it resonates in my soul, if you will, like that's like, oh, I want that. I want more of that. Give me all of that. Yeah, the uh, well, it's it's interesting. So I have Ceres and Pisces on my midheaven like Kyle does. Um, and I actually did work in food service for most of my adult life. Um, I worked in food service from the age of 18 until I was in my late 20s. Um, so, you know, I spent I spent over a decade working in food service. Um, I didn't like it. <laughs> yeah. So, yeah. you know, and I see series on my midheaven, I'm not like, oh, I'm happy about that. Yeah. Is there another <laughs> way that particular, uh, it's, it's yeah, like it's relevant, but I don't want it to be relevant mm -hmm. like that because that wasn't a fun time. Um, not saying that it can't be. Um, you know, there are people who work in that field who are having a great time, but it, it was not for me. Um, but, you know, that's, that's certainly a, a signification. But I think it's interesting. Um, it's in the ninth house. Both of us have the midheaven in the ninth house. And uh, we're both astrologers. And um, there is a way in which astrology is a service of giving care and nurturing. Um, but more in, in a watery sense. Like it's more about spiritual and emotional nurturing as opposed to the physical, tangible, you know, cooking someone a meal. Um, I'd think, you know, Ceres in, in Pisces in the ninth house um, might have more to do with, you know, helping somebody figure out their existential crisis yeah. or, you know, listening to them when they're having problems and just being a, you know, a supportive, um, you know, sort of shoulder for them uh, on an emotional level. Yeah helping someone, you know, sort out, you know, a spiritual crisis that they might be having, that kind of thing. And I also, I worked in the church for a long time mm, too. Yeah. Well, I mean, it, it shows up for me. I it did massage uh, for a long time, um, about 10 years, which is another way of, of taking care of people, right? Because I do, you know, when you think about what seems kind of uh, obvious to me now, um, maybe I, I wouldn't have thought of when looking at series series before, you know, like, oh, food, what? Um, but that sort of community uh, orientation or wanting to, you know, create a, a safe um, environment. Uh, what are Tristan and I doing right now? We're, we're creating a podcast that uh, I think in part is an expression or, or part of an effort to want to kind of create a safe and um, supportive community around astrology, you know, find other like-minded uh, people. And we both have Jupiter in the 11th house in our charts and Ceres in Pisces is ruled by Jupiter. So she's in the ninth house, but she's being ruled by a planet that's in the 11th mm -hmm. house. And there's that connection between spirituality and building community. And Ceres is about uh, nurturing and providing care and support. So I think it all fits together nicely. Um, I think something significant that really sold Kyle and I on the significance of the asteroids, at least, you know, series in particular, is that uh, the way Kyle and I met is he uh, made a post on an astrology subreddit um, asking if people wanted free readings. And within two minutes of him making that post, I just happened to be scrolling Reddit at the time, though within two minutes I responded. And we have the chart 
for when he posted this, which is how we, you know, started corresponding in the first place. Um, and at the time he posted it, Ceres was in Pisces and Kyle was having a Ceres return um, and Ceres happened to be in the 11th house. So I had had my series return, you know, sort of exactly a little bit before that, but it was like pretty much exactly on your series, Kyle, when you mm -hmm. posted that. And I think inevitably what happened is we recorded a podcast episode entirely about the asteroids. So clearly series was like, <laughs> you know, I, I need to get my name out there. So I'm going to get these two astrologers together and convince them that they should spend, you know, half an hour discussing me on a podcast. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I, we were both having ninth house years as well. Uh, so that sign was activated. Um, yeah. While there are like other transits uh, you could point to is, is maybe being significant. Uh, that one's like the most exact and the most obvious. Uh, just found that pretty interesting and convincing. Yeah, that was pretty uncanny. Um, yeah, and it's just, you know, both of us being in a year where the midheaven is activated and both of us trying to start up an astrology career, it's just, it's very funny. Mm -hmm. It's It does feel very faded when you see that in a chart. Um, yeah. There's... Uh, I'm also looking at the chart for the discovery of Ceres, which is really fun. Um, mm, nice. Interestingly, both Jupiter and Saturn are in the first house um, in the chart of Ceres' discovery. Uh, Jupiter, of course, being a brother uh, to Ceres and Saturn being the father of Ceres. So it's kind of cool that both of those planets are quite prominent. They're in the first house in Leo. Um, Ceres herself is actually conjunct the midheaven in her own discovery chart hmm. um, in the sign of Taurus, which seems like a very appropriate series sign. Um, this series having so much lunar symbolism, it's kind of fitting that, you know, she would be in the sign of the moon's exaltation when she decided to show up on our radar for the first time. And uh, uh, Pluto is also in the eighth house in the chart of series's discovery. Um, which I think is kind of interesting given that there is, you know, the, a significant part of series mythology has to do with the underworld and Pluto is kind of the, uh, main adversary, uh, in series's most well-known mythological tale. And, you know, he's right there in, in the eighth house, which is about the underworld. <laughs> yeah. Uh, is there an aspect I think with, uh, Series at all? Pluto is overcoming series via a sextile. Uh, so, mm. not a bad aspect. Uh, Pluto in series discovery chart is in Pisces in the eighth house. I mean, they ended up and series is in Taurus in the tenth. Yeah. So, you know, it's, uh, it's not a tense relationship necessarily, although Pluto does hold some power in it. Yeah. And series was actually also retrograde during her discovery. Oh, interesting. Um, unless there's like other significations we want to talk about. I have just a couple like my weird kooky uh, tinfoil hat ideas maybe about, about series. Um, Those are my favorite ideas. Yeah. Please share. Well, I would be interested to study uh, the relationship um, between Pluto and series in maybe charts uh, that 
mm-hmm. uh, the charts of people who maybe lived those um, those themes out, you know, very visibly. And it'd be nice to sort of think of, uh, you know, the degree to which Pluto could be considered malefic, right? It's it's not everybody's favorite planet. I wouldn't strictly call it a malefic, uh, but you know, to whatever degree you could describe Pluto that way, I'd like to think of of Ceres as like a benefic. Uh, maybe <laughs> it's. I mean, it, obviously, it's it's hard to. Um, I don't know. Do you feel like a lot of the new bodies that we're bringing in don't? Um, they're not happy bodies. They're not <laughs> happy. They're not bringing in happy topics. You know, we could use a little more. Use some more benefics uh, mm-hmm. in astrology, but um, yeah, I don't know that uh, the fact that uh, Ceres got kind of promoted as Pluto was being demoted, um, and that they are actually very similar size. That Ceres kind of has this uh, special status, you know, in the asteroid belt, and Pluto gets this sort of special status in the Kuiper belt. Uh, as sort of bodies of significance, you know? Um, yeah, I almost, now I almost don't ever want to look at either one in a chart without the other. Yeah, and I I think that series of all of them, I think if there was going to be a takeaway that just from an astrological or astronomical perspective, like it, it warrants bringing in it to at least be considered an equal weight to Pluto. Uh, I don't think it's been studied as, as thoroughly as Pluto um, and weirdly hasn't been taken as seriously as Pluto, even though we discovered Ceres, what, over 100 years before Pluto? Oh, yeah, Pluto is very recent. Yeah, we were like all over Pluto when we discovered it. Well, it's and- interesting because Ceres was, I mean, I think it probably has to do with the climate around astrology. Um, I don't think in the early 1800s that there was much of an astro- like astrology kind of fell out of favor between the renaissance yeah um and like the victorian the, age yeah. yeah like the it really started picking up again i guess in like the 1930s um so i wonder if you know the discovery of sirius just kind of fell in that fallow period for astrology um i'd need to look into that more to verify that that's the case but I wonder if that's what's going on there. Because Ceres was declared a planet, I believe, when she was first discovered. Yeah, Um, but you know what makes sense is that uh, it was in the 1850s that Ceres was demoted to um, an asteroid. And even though they're very similar bodies, I think Pluto has a lot more mass overall. But during that period, from the 1850s to 2006, it was considered an asteroid. I mean, it was only really in like the 1960s or so that um, people started kind of using the asteroids in astrology. Mm-hmm. Maybe just kind of by virtue of its designation or label, like it didn't uh, get treated the same way as Pluto. Yeah, and it's hard not to see the the symbolism that um, Demetra George was really trying to make the astrology community aware of by talking about the asteroids that. Um, there's, you know, when, when things become culturally relevant or become popular, there's, that's a sign that something is in the sort of popular consciousness that's important to look at. And, you know, when you have these goddess figures, um, starting to become important in astrology, 
you know, we're in the business of reading signs and that is possibly a sign of, you know, those uh, topics really entering the public consciousness in a meaningful way. Um, so it's almost like, you know, the, the topics of, it's, it's very, there's a lot of gender stuff with the asteroids too. Um, mm-hmm. because, you know, maleness is the default. Um, the fact that the asteroids are goddesses, um, kind of makes them sort of unique because they stand in contrast to the default, you know, the, the maleness of the traditional planets, um, isn't, you know, like as prominent a part of their symbolism, but the gender of the asteroids is discussed a lot as being relevant to their symbolism and sort of, you know, the, um, the asteroids becoming important, um, during, you know, women's liberation. And, and now, you know, we've had like Pluto demoted and Ceres promoted, you know, in astronomical terms and, you know, public awareness around issues of gender is, you know, changing and evolving and, um, you know, non-binary people are becoming more and more visible. Um, like, yeah, I guess there's just, it. it's interesting that that astronomically did seem to coincide with a change of priorities or change of visibility, I guess, is the best way to put it in our culture, um, where, you know, Ceres, who had been kind of ignored, um, you know, because she's the incorrect gender and was just around at the incorrect time, um, is now becoming more and more relevant and Pluto is becoming potentially a bit less relevant as the sort of patriarchal god. That is actually, uh, we could get way out there or way into the weeds, but, uh, you know, the 1920s, that was a time that was um, really kind of when the women's um, liberation movement was picking up, like you, yeah. women's suffrage, but also kind of faced like a, a bit of a backlash too. I do find it interesting that the asteroids... I mean, they were always there, but they sort of showed up or we started paying more attention to them maybe when we needed sort of uh, different bodies to project specific um, ideas or themes uh, onto, you know, like about parenthood, you know, which sort of fell under the the moon broadly, but maybe as a collectively as a society, we needed to explore sort of other themes around that more specific themes um, kind of separately. Mm-hmm. But I mean, even that could get into a whole uh, another world of, of discussion. Like why does astrology work? You know, <laughs> if anybody wants to ask that one, you know? Uh, yeah, please, uh, please ask us that question. A fun five that, hour episode. <laughs> yeah, that would be another uh, special episode where we only focus on that topic, I think. Yeah, that, yeah. All right, so we have we have Juno up next. Uh, Juno was the third asteroid to be discovered. Um, she is named for the the highest goddess in the Roman pantheon um, and the wife of Jupiter. So the equivalent of Hera in Greek mythology, the wife of Zeus. Um, there isn't as much sort of fun astronomical stuff I discovered about Juno compared to what uh, Kyle dug up about Ceres. Um, Although one fun fact about Juno is that she is very reflective. Um, So even though Juno is not the largest of the asteroids, 
Uh, she was discovered before a number of the larger ones because of this reflective property. It's interesting. It makes sense kind of with uh, being a planet about relationships and, and companionship you know, being very reflective. Yeah, that actually does really fit, doesn't it? Mm-hmm. Yeah, I shouldn't. I shouldn't underestimate the symbolism of these little astronomical details. Yeah, they all have little little things that are like, oh, yeah, that, that does that makes sense. Yeah, that does fit. Um, Juno. I mean, it's probably more. I'm more familiar with, uh, you know, the Greek mythology with the mythology of Hera. I don't have uh, any you know, particular stories memorized to tell, but um, a predominant theme in Hera's myths is um, her relationship with Zeus and how rocky that relationship is. And yet uh, she remains very committed and loyal to the relationship. I mean, Zeus is notoriously bad at monogamy um, and Hera... (laughs) you know, remains faithful and actually turns away potential suitors quite consistently. Um, Which does, I think, with Juno and Juno's significations having to do with marriage and relationship, there is that question of what makes Juno different from Venus, which represents marriage and relationship. And I think maybe one of the key uh, significations that distinguishes Juno or makes Juno a little bit more specific is that quality of loyalty um, and fidelity. Yeah, Yeah. devotion. Venus indicates relationships and marriage, but doesn't necessarily indicate like where Venus is placed in your chart might say something about your relationship values or... um, Broadly. Yeah, or what your marriage is like, whereas the story of Juno is very specific. Like Venus could be potentially about any type of relationship or any type of marriage. I believe Aphrodite had many lovers, right? Yeah, Aphrodite was not faithful to her husband. And it's yeah. there. there's a bit of a contrast between Aphrodite and Hera when it comes to relationships where Aphrodite, I don't think, wanted to be married and was not happy with her husband. Um, and had numerous affairs, whereas Hera was like, ride or die, <laughs> you know, I'm, yeah. I'm committed to this. I, you know, I'm not going to fool around with other people. So that is sort of like a distinctive, like subcategory of relationships um, that I think Juno specifically represents. And so, you know, in a birth chart, I think Juno potentially points to um, issues around loyalty in relationships and what we're willing to put up with in our relationships. Like, where is the boundary? Um, are we willing to put up with too much uh, in order to remain like loyal to our partners? Um, yeah, the Juno was one where uh, neither of us found as much sort of stuff going on in our own charts of the charts of people we knew where we were like, oh, that really stands out as like a Juno situation. I don't know. Maybe you've maybe you've discovered something since we last spoke, Kyle, about Juno and in, in a chart that stood out to you. I think that uh yeah, Juno um well it's almost something I want listeners to bear in mind is that um 
for all my astrological genius, I haven't had a lot of time to sit with with all these with these these archetypes, right? So I I kind of want to um, you know, qualify my these are kind of hot takes or, or you know, not uh, <clears throat> you know, fully cooked thoughts about about Juno, but kind of relating to uh, the idea that the asteroids sort of um, bringing some some focus onto uh, topics that are generally fall under the umbrella of of other planets like Juno maybe with with Venus and marriage and sort of drawing attention to sort of the other side of that uh, or sort of the maybe directing it towards let me back up a little so think of Hera right um and the shit that she had to put up with uh being married to Zeus who's out sexing up the the world right and it's actually, there's a, a really good show on Netflix called Blood of Zeus. It's like an anime. Oh, I keep meaning uh, to watch that. <laughs> it's really good. Yeah, you should totally watch it. Um, and, I mean, Hera's not uh, depicted very, uh, very kindly. <laughs> it's, uh, she's not very nice in the show. But, you know, just thinking about, like, traditionally, what was expected of women in marriage, you know, to put up with your husband's shit and be happy about it because that is... You know, marriage is like, that's your goal. That's what you want. You want to be a good wife and get a good marriage. Um, I feel like Juno sort of points out the qualities that go into devotion and commitment and uh, what goes into marriages and long-term partnerships in general, which is a certain degree of putting up with (laughs) with people you Mm -hmm. love. Shit, I mean, you can't have a relationship without, you know, I know there are qualities about me that, you know, might get under uh, people that I love skin sometimes, but they love me. So, you know, they 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 don't pay too much attention to it or they, they brush over it. Or, you know, we get in spats about it every now and then. Like that that's part of of uh, being committed to somebody is accepting them for their, their flaws, their shortcomings. But um, kind of with the, the goddesses sort of highlighting uh, uh, more of a feminine perspective on things, it's sort of... Um, I don't know exactly when Juno was discovered, but I do think about women's liberation and like, uh, did you ever watch Mad Men? I did not watch Mad Men. Oh, yeah. I do know Um, that uh, they dig into issues of gender in that particular world a lot in the show, but I've never watched it. Yeah. There's a lot of, um, you know, successful hotshot men like going out and just sleeping with whoever they could while their wives you know, stayed at home and um, did all the cooking and cleaning and put up with it. And eventually a lot of them didn't, you know, and I think that those are topics that became really relevant and made, you know, uh, I think women in general started to be able to get into a position where they could make demands of husbands too, to a degree where it's just kind of accepted uh, more now, Uh, not wording that right, but um. I don't think most people, when they get married now, expect to have uh, their wives, you know, stay home and, and be barefoot and pregnant and, you know, let them frolic around and do whatever they want. You know, there's more of a, a reciprocity, um, mutual expectation. And I believe that is one of the things that Juno is supposed to signify is um, an emphasis on equal partnership. Mm-hmm. Yeah, definitely. I know for me, uh, 
I have Juno opposing my moon uh, very tightly. And uh, I would say that, that is the element of, of Juno that I can identify with. You know, it's an opposition which maybe um, means some sort of conflict there, but it's actually something that I've always uh, sought out, uh, like almost to my detriment in some cases, where like I needed things to be so equal that uh, I was sort of uncomfortable with any sort of imbalance maybe go too far in trying to correct it or, or, or something. I know you have Juno conjunct your Jupiter in your 11th house, right, Tristan? Yeah, which is, I mean, I feel like that should be, it's interesting because Juno and Jupiter are the married couple and they're within two degrees of each other in my chart. So they're actually together in my chart. Yeah, and like, widely opposing my moon like they're pretty far apart but there is a sign based opposition going on there i don't know i'm just thinking about my own attitude um there's this sense too in i mean it's it's hard especially as you know a modern reader not to look at the stories of Zeus and Hera and just feel like this is a very dark archetype mm-hmm. because it says so much about the subjugation of women in the institution of marriage. Um, and another another sort of aspect of the Juno archetype is jealousy. Um, and there's a way... In in the mythology, in the stories of Zeus and Hera's marriage, Hera didn't really have any power. And the only power she did have was to attack the women that Zeus became involved with. And so there are a lot of stories of Hera getting sort of pissed off at Zeus's various consorts and giving them trouble um, because of you know what was considered to be her jealousy. I think there's an interesting reflection in that of how um, women's needs in relationships have been characterized as um, an inconvenience to men, you know, and that's, I mean, these, and these stories too, I mean, it's also hard for me trying to find myself in these stories is also hard for me as a queer person because they are very heteronormative. Um, But I think, you know, even beyond the issue of like relationships between women and men, these stories tell us something about power dynamics in relationships in general. Obviously, the dynamics between women and men um, look a certain way, but, you know, that's not the, those are not the only two sort of categories of human in which that power imbalance shows itself. There is a power imbalance in certain relationships where, um, you know, some people's, needs are taken seriously and some people's needs are seen as an inconvenience and when um people whose needs are seen as an inconvenience to the dominant group try uh to get those needs met um there are not usually like straightforward avenues for them to get those needs met they can't just declare i have these needs like i need to be fulfilled in my marriage as much as you do um and it's your job to meet those needs Um, so you're kind of left with no other choice. It's like, you know, Hera is not, um, 
Hera's not jealous. You know, it's one of those, there's a way in which, you know, we invalidate the needs and emotions of people that we treat like crap so that we can continue justifying how we treat them. And I think this is one of those cases where, um, you know, what gets labeled as jealousy is actually like a cry for help and communication. Um, Yeah, it's like, it's really convenient, you know, when we're treating somebody like crap and they've finally had enough and, you know, the situation, there's such a power imbalance that the only way they can communicate is, you know, through like in the stories of Zeus and Hera, Hera accosts Zeus's lovers. Um, there's, there's no other avenue she has to communicate with Zeus that like, this is not okay. Um, and, you know, and instead of going, you know, I need to look at my own behavior, it's really easy to just say, well, that's her problem. And she's just being jealous and she's just being, you know, crazy, which is another, you know, word, another very problematic word that gets leveled at people in relationships all the time when they're just Mm -hmm. like trying to communicate their needs and it's inconvenient to their partner. So, oh, they're just, they're just crazy. Like they're irrational. Their emotions are getting the better of them. Yeah. I've always seen that as one of the like big the key components of male privilege is that uh, kind of privilege to um, be dismissive of the you know the peculiar the the peculiarities and the particularities of of women's issues. You know, mm-hmm. it, there is a, a bit of that diminutive like quality uh, to it. Mm-hmm. I mean, obviously, it's, it's very complicated, but I, I think that um, those are like really excellent points. And I think, you know, you kind of see with, with Hera, even in that dynamic, that the, the power gap and power um, dynamic in that relationship is so deep set that, yeah, Hera's only, she can't really confront Zeus uh, directly. And so, you know, she has to go kind of alternative directions or it builds up and, and she gets hysterical, right? Yeah, another another good keyword. Uh, and Zeus is able to discredit and dismiss Hera as, you know, yeah, that crazy, jealous goddess Hera. Yeah, so I wonder if, you know, in a chart, Juno can point to a desire for equality in relationships, like you were, you know, saying with your own example, um, and perhaps point to, you know, how our experiences, how we experience power within relationships and I think, you know, the sort of emergence of Juno as um, an asteroid that uh, deserves a place in astrology is, you know, perhaps a sign that we're starting to question traditional relationships is, you know, like Hera is sort of the the model monogamist and it's like... Mm-hmm is monogamy working and if it's not working but it's still a valuable way of structuring our relationships how do we get it to work in a way that's fulfilling for you know the partners that are involved in a monogamous relationship yeah it it should be a negotiation and is supposed to like a mandate that um one party sort of uh, declares over the other one Mm mm-hmm 
I mean, maybe relevant to these issues of questioning relationship structures and questioning at least what we think of as traditional models of relationships. Um, I was non-monogamous. I was polyamorous for many years um, and changed, you know, my, I, I am no longer, you know, polyamorous. I'm very happily monogamous now. Um, but sort of going through a period of questioning monogamy and questioning monogamous relationships uh, was very insightful for me. I mean, I don't know if I can connect this at all to Juno's placement in my own chart being, you know, conjunct Jupiter. I can. Yeah. All right. Well, I'm looking forward <laughs> have, to hearing have, what you have to have say it. about this. Uh, <laughs> yeah. And I'm also looking forward to us getting to Palace and, you know, Palace's ability to uh, notice patterns because I feel like you are very skilled at that and you've got a prominent Palace in your chart. But yeah, I mean, that, that, uh, <laughs> That period of questioning monogamy, you know, ultimately I did decide monogamy was the correct relationship structure for me, but I went through a period of questioning it. And something that I learned during that period of questioning is that if people like polyamorous relationships are becoming increasingly visible and, you know, one of the sort of um, challenges of polyamory is that in order to do it successfully, it requires a lot of open communication and a lot of negotiating boundaries and expectations. Um, but what's interesting to me about that is that, you know, it's sort of, we, we expect that non-monogamous relationships are going to require so much communication and negotiation, but we underestimate how much communication and negotiation is required to keep monogamous relationships functional. Mm. It's and and there's a way because monogamy is the default setting, um, there's a way that I think people get into relationships with an expectation of monogamy and what monogamy means to the people in that relationship is never discussed, right? It's like, does monogamy mean that I don't hold hands with my friend, like a platonic handholding? Yeah. Is that, you know, am I um, is it okay for me to flirt with people online? Like where where do we draw the line? That is something that needs to be discussed and not just assumed. But because when something is the default, a lot of things are left up to assumptions and not communicated. And I think there I don't think that either polyamory or monogamy is better than the other, but I think where um, monogamy often fails is that people rely on assumptions and don't communicate their expectations out of the gate because we're sort of able to follow this default script for our relationships. Mm -hmm. And it's not sort of like in our face all the time that, oh, we really need to think about this or we really need to talk about our feelings on this. Whereas with polyamory, it's like, you know, very, very clear that like, oh, we really need to talk about our feelings about this issue because there is no cultural script for us to follow. We're making things up as we go along. <laughs> I think I just, I think I just heard a swish of, you know, like the basket. Uh, I think you, you just nailed it. Um, no, that's, uh, I think exactly it. Cause um, we don't have that cultural script. Like you said, like we don't have, um, it's not implicit or implied anymore. You know, those things do need to be discussed. And, and mm -hmm. uh, I think that, I mean, that's kind of what just, you I mean, the asteroids in general, like are splitting off these, these topics, these things that are, are relevant, that need to be 
kind of brought to our attention, sort of separated from kind of the idea of marriage and partnership in general, because that whole idea has mm -hmm. gotten a little, uh, you know, there's some problems in there that maybe we need to sort through. So we need something else to like reflect that on. Yeah, it's like highlighting that specific issue and sort of putting a, a neon sign, you know, this subset of relationship issues that, you know, is a sign that like you guys really need to examine this. Yeah. Yeah. And uh, just thinking about you and, and your chart is actually something that I looked up because uh, I remember now been so much just been a blur of researching asteroids. I kind of forgot <laughs> about it. <laughs> but but uh, I remember you telling me that you met Keith. Um, it was like at the very end of your seventh house year, right? Yeah, yeah. The very tail end of my seventh house year, like two or three days before it ended. Yeah, and I was kind of looking at the dates and I mean, it wasn't perfect, but I imagine that uh, the period building up to that, um, that, uh, you know, I, 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 you haven't really gone into huge detail, but um, I imagine the period that preceded meeting Keith uh, entailed a lot of um, reevaluating uh, some, getting some new ideas about how you want to proceed in relationships, which, you know, coincides with the Saturn return and, and seventh house and everything. But Uranus was also transiting. It was in Taurus at the time. It just kind of gotten in there. I think, um, I don't know if I identified if it had gotten to Jupiter and Juno yet in your chart, but you know, you kind of, uh, undergoing a, could be considered maybe a radical change in your relationship style around, you know, Uranus transiting Juno could sort of tie in to that, that theme. Also having, you know, Juno and Jupiter trine, you, the ruler of your seventh. And pretty closely too. Just given from what you said, it sounds like you have lived in, and uh, done a lot of thinking about, <laughs> about the, uh, <laughs> the topics related to Juno. So. That's... Good job. Kyle is a really good astrologer. I just want to take a moment to uh, point that out to everyone who's thinking about um, getting an astrology reading that you will get insights like this from this human. So uh, do it. <laughs> get a reading from Kyle. Because <laughs> yeah, that's that's exactly it. <laughs> Thank you for the plug, Tristan. Um, you are at least an equally good astrologer. And I think the thing is that it's really hard to get those kinds of insights on yourself. Um, it's true. You're looking at your own chart and you can look at it all day. You need, it's like cutting your own hair, you know, you, you <laughs> to really get a nice, good, uh, clean cut. Like you need, granted, I cut my own hair now ever since the pandemic, but <laughs> and I do a pretty good job, but I, uh, it, it, you know, there's angles and spots that you can't see that, um, that other people can seeing a really, you know, uh, a rating with an excellent astrologer like Tristan will help you get that kind of insight. Or me too, you know, I'm all right. <laughs> <laughs> it is, it is true. It's because I think we tend to, um, we, we fixate on certain things and we tend to find what we're looking for. And that's when it really helps to have someone else's perspective. Cause mm -hmm. I would not have caught that. And that is like eerily accurate, um, where it was a very radical change. I went from a polyamorous relationship and from only being in polyamorous relationships for almost a decade to deciding this isn't for me anymore and the reasons you know and this isn't a um a criticism of polyamory in general you know i'm sure it works great for some people but i think the reasons that i was 
um, were not the healthiest reasons. And I went through this long period of really examining um, what my reasons were for seeking that kind of relationship structure and whether or not my needs were being met within it. And the conclusion I came to is that my needs were not being met within that particular structure. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. So it was, uh, it was a pretty drastic change. Thank you, Uranus and Juno for helping me figure my shit out. <laughs> yeah. Uh, well, are we, think that's all we have for for juno or i actually have a really good chart example for a juno placement um i have katherine hepburn's chart katherine hepburn probably doesn't need any introduction really she was uh i think the most i think she's won the most oscars of any actress um she is like a classical hollywood actress Catherine Hepburn was born with Scorpio rising. Uh, Her ascendant was at seven degrees of Scorpio and her Juno was at five degrees of Scorpio and retrograde, um, which may or may not be relevant, but um, she was a very, very fiercely independent woman who married briefly but described herself as not being such a great wife um and she was very famous for being in a relationship with actor spencer tracy who was her co-star in nine different films and spencer tracy was they were i believe both married when they met and started having their affair Um, And Spencer Tracy actually remained married to his wife, even while having the affair. They never separated. Catherine Hepburn never wanted a marriage with him. Um, So there was no, like, competition in that sense, I guess. But something maybe unusual about this relationship for Catherine is that while she was generally so independent when it came to Tracy, she was very devoted. Um, she actually spent several years um, taking care of him when his health started declining in the 60s. She took a five-year break from her career, which was really unusual for her. And a lot of people you know, described her as being like very... Um, Like she changed when she was around Spencer Tracy. She just lit up around him and she'd say, you know, like she would do anything for him. So it's just that when I think about Zeus and Hera in mythology, I think about, you know, the constant affairs and this weird contrast between, you know, Zeus's infidelity and Hera's devotion, like her almost single-minded devotion, um, and I guess, you know, maybe there's some of those themes kind of coming up there where there's like, you know, an affair happening outside of a marriage, but there is also that theme of devotion. Yeah. Uh, <clears throat> actually, um, who was Aphrodite married to? It's slipping my mind. Hephaestus, but I don't think she was happy with that marriage, and she had an affair famously with Ares that the gods shamed them for. 
Yeah, they were kind of uh, obsessed with each other a little bit, actually. From gather, it was. I mean, there's a lot of jealousy uh, with Aphrodite, actually, which we'll get to with Pallas. Uh, um, Aphrodite was very jealous of Pallas, uh, and all the time that Pallas got to spend with uh, Ares. Do we want to move on to Pallas? Um, yeah. So about Hello, listeners. Kyle here. I imagine you've been so enraptured by Tristan and I's riveting and incisive commentary of the asteroids that you didn't even realize that we are rapidly approaching the two-hour mark, and we've only finished discussing two of the promised four asteroids. Now you're probably thinking, wow, Tristan and Kyle, those guys are pretty hardcore. And you're right, we are hardcore. But we also care about you, listeners. And just like eating too much in one sitting can give you a bit of a tummy ache, taking in too much information can have similar effects on your mind. Which is why we would like to give you an opportunity to digest everything by breaking this episode into two more reasonably portioned but equally delicious courses. For the Augustus Gloops out there listening on release day, you will find a second helping waiting for you tomorrow. But for the rest of you, you can continue on with Palace and Vesta at your leisure by downloading Side B of this episode. As always, if you have a question you'd like to hear answered on Astrology Hotline, shoot us an email at astrologyhotlinepod at gmail.com. Thanks for listening. Attention listeners, Astrology Hotline is at war. At war with unanswered astrology questions. We have the weapons, we have the training, but to achieve ultimate victory, we need your help. I want you to take out your phone, open up Apple Podcasts, subscribe to Astrology Hotline, crush all five stars, and rain down a righteous review of furious satisfaction. I want you to open up Spotify, subscribe to Astrology Hotline, and launch one high-speed thumb of flaming death at that five-star rating. And I want you to find the gnarliest, most insidious astrology question you can find. Email it to astrologyhotlinepod at gmail.com so we can slaughter it mercilessly on the show. Together, we can conquer astrology one question at a time.